Three, two, one. Three, two, one. Welcome <laughs> yeah, to the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Week week three, season two, kind of. <laughs> of the tomorrow. So future. I don't know if you guys remember, we were supposed to do um, we were supposed to do a podcast like a year and a half ago or something, um, and then we just kind of never got it scheduled and, and sort of faded. Oh right. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I'm glad we kind of finally got to sync up. All it took was a global pandemic. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Making the yeah. most of the situation. Well, I guess uh, I guess first things first, David. Maybe intro yourself. I guess for our for our ten listeners. <laughs> what do you want to know about me? My name is David Ernst, and I'm a human. <laughs> nice, cool. Well, yeah. I mean, you're a very interesting human, though. First of all, tomorrow person. But second, I guess uh, you know one one of the ways kind of our friendship started and. Um, you know, we, we started working on projects together was because uh, we were both interested in democracy and sort of technology's role in democracy. So, um, yeah, I think today I, I was hoping maybe, you know, just in the spirit of also the election and kind of everything going on there, maybe talk a little bit about voting systems, uh, digital democracy, kind of like what what we think is maybe the future of democracy and, and also just some of like the past and history and, and why, um, you know, why we do some, certain things in the way that we do them um and also maybe like some of the philosophy around um you know what like what is what is really the point and what's the what's the spirit of democracy if you will yeah these are all some of my favorite subjects yeah no cool yeah i mean we have definitely had a a number of mind walks around these (laughs) um think uh what was it like we clocked in almost at six hours at one time with sai at least i feel like we've done that one a bunch of times yeah well cool i guess why don't we start with like what you're working on currently which is the um secure internet voting uh civ sure yeah this is in many ways like the most practical aspect to all this it's also it's not nearly as cool than some of the other topics so we can save those for later uh the basic idea is secure internet voting is software that we make for governments to be able to provide internet voting to their citizens such that the citizens can feel like it's trustworthy, the governments can feel like it's trustworthy, third parties can feel like it's trustworthy. And it's really three promises in particular. It's that it's fast. You can do the whole thing right from your phone or tablet instantly. You just click a few buttons. It's like, it's very quick and easy. Um, the second part is that it's private, so it uses this really strong cryptography to provide truly private voting, so there's no database of how you personally voted or how anyone voted individually, um, and the way it accomplishes that is super clever. We can get into that if you want. And then the third part of it, for many people, this is really the most important piece, is that it's completely verifiable. So you can be confident that the way that you vote is um, the way you intend to vote is the way it gets counted in the final in the final tally and that it's totally free from tampering I mean there's a, there's a bunch of steps in between just like with any voting system um, there's a bunch of intermediary steps and so you just want to be sure that none of those steps got compromised and so the system kind of has two different ways of verifying it's like you can every one of those steps can be verified cr- for correctness and just in a much simpler way, 
when you vote, your, your vote has this cryptographic tracking number on it, a private tracking number. And so in the final vote, you can actually see it. You can just press Control F or Command F or find on page if you're on a mobile device and you can actually find your specific vote right there in the final tally super easily. So you can show it to somebody that isn't super technical. They can, I mean, the proof is in the pudding that it's exactly as intended. So I guess uh, I have two questions. It's amazing. It's super cool. And my question, because I was having this conversation with somebody recently, and they brought up a good point. And they said, you know, when you vote, it's supposed to be anonymous, right? Like, you're not supposed to know who voted for who. So, like, right. it can be, you need all the verification and everything, but how would how do you keep that, how do you still let people be anonymous? Yeah. Yeah, it's... These two problems are somewhat in tension with each other. Like you could conduct a, an election, if you will, super easily just in you know Google Sheet or in a in a classroom. You can, um, you know, everyone just write their they have their name and they just write the way they vote next to their name, and then they could see yes, my vote got counted correctly. So that's super simple and straightforward. When you want to make it private, now you need to introduce some sort of privacy technology, whether it's, you know, you write your vote down on a piece of paper and you put them all in a hat and you mix up the hat, or you have these booths that sort of create the same sort of situation, but you need some sort of way to anonymize the votes. And so in our system, yep. You also need a way to, to make sure who's ever voting should be voting. Yeah, right. So that's the authentication problem. So it's really, it's three hard technical problems that is authenticated. So only the right people are voting and only once per person. Mm-hmm. And then that the vote is private, that the nobody else can see how you voted because that really does influence the way you're going to vote. It's not really considered a free election unless it's truly private. And, and yeah, and that there's some way that you can trust that the final count is valid and with our paper elections we don't really have strong verifiability you, ju- you just kind of have to trust the process and there's a lot of like stuff that happens behind the curtain that it, it makes it a lot of people you know have skepticism about how reliable it is and i don't mean to fear monger about that i mean there's a lot of good work that goes into that but we could just improve it and make it way more obvious that it's fair and legitimate Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, basically, you register to vote, you send in something, you end up on a list, and you go and you say, oh, that's me on that list, you know, or at least in most places I voted, I don't, you don't have to show an ID or anything. So, like, that is definitely not a perfect system. A uh, ton of issues with it. Right. And like with Vote by Mail this year, because of the pandemic, there's sort of a question of like, did your ballot actually make it into the final count? Like, how do you know that it didn't get lost in the mail? Because, of course, things do get lost in the mail. So, and then, so, I guess how do you how do you get that unique number that generates that unique key, right? Right. Uh, yeah. But verify, and that number not become like you or right? Like, it's it's tricky. You want to verify, but. I guess you could just see if they voted and then only you could unlock like your encrypted 
vote, but how are they going to unencrypt it so they can figure out who you voted for? Totally. Yeah. So the way that we do it in the Civ system is that we use um, what's called threshold cryptography. It's like a form of multi-party cryptography. So you have like and a shared so, key. Exactly. Well, it's it's um it's a key that's split into multiple parts. Okay, so, so you need both parts to open it. Exactly, or you know, n number of parts. I mean, you could yep. have ten parts, you could have ten thousand parts. Mm-hmm. So we have what what are called election trustees who actually um, ensure the privacy of the vote, and so they work together to anonymize all the votes, and then they work together to unlock all the votes. Hmm. So when the vote is being anonymized, I guess that could be a an area of abuse potentially from like an outside party or something. Yeah, but, yeah. the The way to think about it, it's pretty cool. The way it works is that all the the anonymization is, is a cryptographic shuffle. So you're like reordering all the votes. It's sort of the the same idea as shuffling oh. up all the votes in the hat. And so the way it works is that. You know, you have, let's say you have five trustees carrying out your election. So the first trustee shuffles the list and they know before they begin who all the identities are. When you, when you yep. submit your vote, it's authenticated so, on the outside of the encryption. Like you so have that an would be token. Like my, I would know that I voted for whatever candidate. Right. If you, I had the yeah, you definitely know. Right. Well, um, feel like we're, we're getting a little confused you definitely you always know how you voted you know you you have documentation that uh it's what we call your encryption receipt of how you voted and so you can see in the final tally if anything went wrong you have proof that can show hey this was how i intended to vote and something went wrong here and it's not just you know you, you can prove that somebody got compromised throughout the process Okay. But the way the anonymization works, this is basically imagine imagine you're you're going to cast your vote and when you cast your vote, you know, you have your ballot, you mark your choices, maybe it's there's 10 different things to vote for, like mayor and governor and president yep. and some ballot propositions. And so you mark all your selections on your ballot. And then when you're going to send it in, you actually put it inside a little safe like a, a little miniature safe. And you lock that safe with a key that you don't control the key to. The key is controlled by that threshold key, that shared key held by all five of the election trustees. And all five, it's not that any one of them has a copy of the key. It's that each of them they have one have fifth of the key. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So just four of them alone isn't enough. You need all five parts for it to work. And, and the math there is fascinating. That's a really fun thing to talk about too. But I'll just skip over that part for now because it's we could go so deep on this. But so you take your vote and you stick it inside this little safe. And then that's actually the thing that you send in. The, the safe with your vote on it, inside of it, locked safely inside of it. And before you send the safe in though, let's say you also um, sign the outside of it. You know, you put, you attach a your auth token which is Uh unique to you as a voter that the election registrar gave you that proves that you're one of the um people that are allowed to vote and you and each person only has one of those 
And so what they receive is a safe that has you, Peter's off token on the outside of it. And then it's locked and they alone, they're only one of the five trustees. So they can't, they have no idea how you vote. It's still inside the safe. But they now have your safe. And the way it works in the Civ system, they actually po- they actually show your safe publicly. So imagine as all the safes come in, they're on like a YouTube feed. And you can see on this YouTube live stream, oh, there's my safe. It arrived. You can see it right there. And so you get immediate confirmation that your vote's been received. You know, basically before, you know, you push a button and it's there and the speed of light way faster than the postal system. And so then after all the votes have been received, all the voters do that step. They mark their choices. They stick them inside the the lock. And the lock is the metaphor for the encryption here. And then once all the votes have been received, then the election closes or whether they've been received or not. At some point, the election closes and then we move on to the anonymization step. And so for the anonymization step, the first thing that they do is the administrator, they already checked when your vote was received that the token on the outside belonged to a valid voter, to you, Peter. And so they already signed off that this is a legitimate vote. And then let's just say they remove it. You know, it was taped onto the outside of the safe. And so they just remove the tape. And so now you have the safe there, but it, um, it doesn't have anybody's name on it anymore. It doesn't have anything that's personally identifiable to you anymore. And so then what they do is they um, basically shuffle up they reorder all the safes so you know they they go in the room with with 500 of them and they just rearrange them they mix up the order they scramble them and they still don't know what's on the inside of the safes the safes are also locked they still have no idea the contents of anybody's votes but now they've been scrambled up but you could imagine maybe hypothetically they might remember where they put one of them. They know how they mixed them up. Nobody else saw them do it, but they know themselves that they moved the one that was in the left corner into the one that's now yeah, in yeah. the right corner. And then and you so, know the order of who mixed it up when. Right. So they do the first shuffle and then the next trustee comes in. Let's say Second, the next trustee third, fourth, fifth. Exactly. So they do this, they repeat the entire shuffle themselves. And then you have the next person do a shuffle. And then you have the next person do a shuffle. And then you have the next person do the shuffle. And all of these parties can do the shuffle. And you can actually add the actual computation is incredibly quick. So you could have lots and lots of shufflers if you wanted. And in the computer set in the digital setting, this isn't true in the physical setting and our metaphor, but in the computer setting, these people also provide what's known as a zero knowledge proof of a valid shuffle, which is a speci- very special mathematical object, which is a evidence that all of the safes that were in there in the beginning are still there in the end. They didn't add any, they didn't remove any, they didn't modify any. Mm. It doesn't. It's zero knowledge, which means that it doesn't give you any information about the way in which they reordered them. But it does prove that if one existed in the beginning, it still exists in the final list. And you know the list is the same number, so none of them have uh, been added or removed. 
And so that, so you do, you repeat the shuffle step through multiple parties. It's sort of like if you're playing poker and multiple people are shuffling the deck of cards. Like one person shuffles the deck and then hands it to the person on the left and they shuffle the deck and they hand it to the person on the left and they shuffle their deck. And the reason is because any one person might do like a, a, a faint of hand, you know, a feint of hand, whatever, the sleight of hand, yep. mm-hmm. like a false shuffle. Where it looks like they're shuffling, but they actually, you know, are trying to force a particular order. It's, you know, it's, they know what they did. But the way the math works out is really powerful. Basically, as long as a single one of these trustees shuffles honestly, then everybody is guaranteed to be anon- their votes to be anonymized. You just need a single person to do a valid shuffle. Just like with the deck of cards, you just need a single person to to not do this sleight of hand and then you're good and so because of yeah and so because of the zero knowledge proof that the shuffle itself is valid you can actually add more people to do this shuffle and so you add you basically you want to have people with like an adversarial relationship so like one person from each of the candidates you know nominated by each of the candidates for example Sure. One, maybe one from like a nonprofit group and one from the actual election administrator. And we, as the people that produce the software, we're more than happy to be one of these people as well. And in the academic literature, the people that originally invented this scheme, um, they actually suggest that you could have, you know, 50,000 people. Anyone could just show up and they could do the shuffle themselves so that, you know, all you have to do That's is download crazy. the list and, right. And so, like, everyone, you know, you can just have open call for anyone that wants to contribute a shuffle so that you have really, really strong confidence that the list is um, properly anonymized. Does it take that much longer for each shuffle to unshuffle it? Um, it's pretty fast. It's, you know, computers are insanely fast. The computer in your smartphone can do 2 billion computations per second. So it's, no, we're we're talking about like seconds here. It really doesn't add that much, hmm. um, that much time. You just the the bigger thing is waiting for the humans to show up and do their part. So we've made this whole program work in a web browser. So it's pretty amazing. So we're we're doing web crypto, web cryptography, which is was not possible until very recently because of the development of modern standards. And so what it means is that people can just open a web page and right they they don't have to install anything and they can just do all the operations right there and they can right click and view source if they want and they can confirm that it's you know it's not doing anything unexpected it's as intended so it's pretty powerful but you have to actually get them to you know have the software run you know open the page so it's pretty cool i mean this is this is definitely the future that's really and then the final step yeah and then the final step is you have the trustees who had to be determined at the beginning of the election. The shufflers can, you know, anyone could show up and do a shuffle if they wanted. But the trustees have to be determined ahead of time. Because when you as the voter, when you were putting your plain text ballot into the lock, you had to make the lock um, specified to the key that was shared between all these, these, these key holders. And so they have to be determined at the beginning of the election because they just need to know who they're encrypting the message to. And then those parties all work together to um, decrypt decrypt all the votes, just the contents of the votes, and then they just publish all the plain text votes publicly, 
And so anyone could themselves very easily tally them all up because the computer can do it quite quickly and you can get results in seconds. So now you just conducted a, you know, an election that could in theory be for millions of people or you know, the whole world if you wanted 7 billion people in basically seconds. It's uh, that zero or one proof, zero knowledge proof. If that's, yeah, the zero knowledge if proof. that's like real, that's, that's incredible. That's like the, that's, yeah, that's the magic. It's sort of magic. Yeah. There's, it, it's really, it's very difficult to conceptualize the way these things work. Um, but yeah, they've been studied. I think the first one was invented in like the seventies, I want to say. But they're um, they're kind of one of these things that are known in like academic cryptography, you know, on cryptography PhDs, but they're not really known in the wider world. Hmm. But yeah, they're they're pretty incredible. Yeah, I guess um, you know my my question would be is the vision or like the first at least because it sounds like there's probably a longer term vision and a shorter term vision is the vision to have this actually replace our current elections and Um, is there any plan beyond that too uh so before it replace i mean i'm just trying to say that this should be an option i mean just as a complementary option at the at the very least um you can you, it's pretty simple it's pretty straightforward actually to run it side by side with vote by mail and vote in person and i'm not here to tell anyone that there's anything wrong with them voting in person or, or voting with paper you know lots lots of people prefer paper you know that's that's just that what they're comfortable with what they've been using for for decades um and it's pretty simple because again it's all authenticated so you can just see oh did you already vote by mail did you already vote in person you know we're not going to accept your your internet vote if so um but yeah just making it adding it as an additional option as a starting place there i mean there's a there there perhaps is a case to be made to restrict offering in person the state of Washington and i believe the state of Oregon and a lot of the state of Colorado are moving away from in person and they're going almost a hundred percent entirely to vote by mail. And the reason for that, their explanation is that it actually really simplifies things for them. And it, it saves a lot of money because voting in person, you know, they have to like rent out the building and they have to pay a lot of people to like, you know, say, this is where you go and they have to bring a bunch of equipment around. And so it's actually simpler to just have everyone do one standard over the mail election. And you could imagine once this system has been used a number of times and people really have a lot of faith in it, which I think it has the potential to have much more faith than vote by mail, you could imagine some jurisdictions deciding, okay, we, we really want to reduce our other ones. Because the crazy thing is that it, it does actually cost a lot of money to carry out elections. That's one of the reasons why we don't have them all that often. I mean, they, the U.S. spends billions of dollars just to conduct elections. Which is so, well yeah. worth it. I mean, I'm not advocating otherwise, but it would so make it easier. So then how do you, I guess, what do um, governments, what are they like, do you position this as like for X election you want to run or X number of people, it'll be, you know, half of what it costs you to do a mail-in one? Or is it more like you want vote, you know, internet voting, like this is a, yearly thing or like a you know sign a 
five-year deal and every election in the meantime is paid for like you know how does yeah, that yeah in terms of pricing you mean yeah since it does cost so much how, how are you thinking of positioning your solution yeah what we'd really like to be able to do is to say whatever your costs right now are for um for vote by mail or your in-person costs per voter we want to take your existing costs and cut them by at least 75 percent wow so every single voter you save yeah you're paying no more than 25 percent does that work and pretty that's well pretty, pitches come in and say don't you wish you could have x many more dollars yeah well i mean the truth yes absolutely and because of the pandemic as well um governments are facing huge um budget shortfall you know uh sure deficiencies unfortunately um and we just in general we don't right now even give enough um money to conducting elections safely and securely so i mean there's a big like partisan fight about that about giving more money to different jurisdictions i mean in I don't know how, how much you follow some of these stories, but like this past year, there's a few places in Georgia where people were expected to wait in eight hour lines to, to be able to cast their vote. And yeah, I mean, it's just crazy just because they don't have enough poll workers. They don't have enough polling places. I mean, elections cost a lot of money. I mean, you have to hire thousands and thousands of people to carry them out. And I mean, I adore these people that help carry them out. Nothing against them at all, but it's just, it's, Humans can only do so much, you know, you can only take, you know, a few dozen, you know, only, there's just only so much capacity at once, whereas computers can, you know, you can put something up on YouTube and a million people can watch it the next day, no problem. The next minute? Or like That's seconds. right. Yeah, there's yeah. these TikTok people that put something up and it's millions in seconds. I guess that's a, a good, co- like a follow-up kind of like a segue i guess into um it seems like there's there's this there's this sort of parallel problem of trust right so there's a lot of a there's misinformation but um you know i think a lot of it just stems from a lack of trust right well people already people know that there's fraud people know that there's been hacking and interference and meddling and and ballots being burnt out they can point to video evidence of it right um and and I, and I say this sort of tongue in cheek, right? Because I, I think it's it's like you can you can share that kind of information, but then the the true story and digging into it takes a little longer. And a lot of times, it's um, you, you know you, you can pretty easily find that that isn't fraud or that was faked or um, whatever. But the misinformation um, just travels so much more quickly, um, I guess. And then too, like because. I think online platforms get blamed for the misinformation itself, right? So like the social media networks and all that, they're sort of seen as the cause. And now this, there's this online voting platform coming along saying like, hey, you know, we're, we're going to solve this problem of like internet fraud and meddling and whatever using, you know, internet voting. Do you see that as a challenge? I guess, how do you approach that problem? Um, you know, or, I mean, A, how do you look at it for yourself, but B, how do you sort of think about communicating it um you know why this is safe and why this is better to a wider audience and how do you how do you gain that trust that this is the better system yeah yeah um where to begin 
I mean, doing doing voting is considered critical infrastructure, right? So if you if you try to mess with voting, I mean, the FBI will you know will will be on you if you're suspected of like you know trying to penetrate voting systems or something like that. Like this is really sensitive stuff. So. And likewise, I mean, that's from like a criminal, you know, law enforcement point of view, just on the other side of it as well. Like people are really, really, really protective of our, you know, free and fair election system or democracy of of trying to maintain our free republic, you know, republic if you can keep it for good reason. I mean, it's really important. Like I, I hope to live in a free, I hope to continue to live in a free society. Um, And, you know, the heart of that is being able to pick our own leaders. And so I am, you know, I'll be the first one shouting in the streets if there's something that on close inspection isn't able to prove itself legitimate, you know, that, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But then you're right, there's also this, this other aspect of it that you mentioned of like, sometimes things look one way but they're kind of like taken out of context or misconstrued or there's like you know lies travel faster than truth or something like that you know there's a lot of misinformation misinformation is just ignorance and then disinformation where it's like somebody's got an agenda they're specifically trying to poison the well and work people up and and do whatever it is so that's i mean yeah it's it's a it's a very real problem What's cool about Civ is that every step of the way is totally verifiable. So it really takes the parts of the process right now that are kind of like behind the curtain, if you will, that are like in the back room, you know, so in, you know, we just had this election three weeks ago now, I guess it was exactly three weeks ago today. And after the election, you saw mobs of people gathering outside the, the like city halls, the polling centers like demanding to be let in and you know there are videos online of cops needing to like stand in the middle and like you know keep people from coming in and there's this sense that like there's something nefarious going on in there among some of these you know the you know there's a whole like stop the steal movement or, or, or what you know what have you and so that's horrible i mean i i sympathize for anyone that feels like something that they don't understand is controlling their government controlling their society i mean that's a horrible feeling and what i'm uh really optimistic about is that this particular civ system is completely inspectable i mean you can poke the thing you can look at the thing you can see okay here's how i voted and here's how i can be a hundred percent confident that there's my vote in the final tally and so I think it ought to have the potential to actually clear up a lot of misconceptions. I think, uh, you know, for paranoid people, it ought to be something that it, it actually offers better verifiability for paranoid people than the current systems offer. But now on the reverse side of that, it's like there's an educational problem. You know, there's a this is new stuff. People aren't familiar with it. Unfortunately, not everyone's going to get a chance to listen to this podcast and so, yeah, I mean, people's first impressions are like, oh, scary, 400-pound man in his basement changing all the votes. Like, that, <laughs> you know, don't put computers um, in my democracy. But, like, I, I, I think what the Sergey might also be getting at, too, is just, like, 
I feel like the more people don't trust in the system, the harder this will be to adopt. Like, um, like I don't know if New Zealanders really enjoy like how they vote, or if, I'm just wondering. Like, there's probably a country out there that like 100% trusts like their government, and they're just doing things to make it better and more efficient. And there's like little deceit in their mind like maybe sweden or norway or something i have no idea you know (laughs) but like some just like honest people um like if it would almost be easier for them to get on board with it because they're like oh yeah just that makes sense whereas like iran or somewhere else might be like no (laughs) you know we like our inefficiencies we've we've kept them there for a reason so Right. Right. Yeah. I, I. Well, so the the first thing that I'd again go back to is that, you know, it's not being forced on anyone. Like it's not being forced on any voters. It's just a complimentary option. If you want to keep using your paper, you know, you're you're in love with your dead tree voting. You can keep using dead right, tree voting. Right. But the, the, the problem with that is like the government doesn't save money if it is just like an added on thing. They kind of have to like do it to save money right well they would save money for every individual voter that opts into this system so if half the voters use the electronic system then you know they that's a lot less because the, the thing about the paper voting system is there are you know there's marginal cost they have to print out all the paper they have to mail all the ballots and then the real cost is when they receive the ballots back they have to hire people to look at the signature and separate out the, you know, do the identity check, Mm. but then actually take the ballot out of the envelope and get this. This is kind of crazy, but one of the reasons why all the voting took so long, this, you know, counting all the votes took so long is because the ballots in vote by mail are folded to fit inside the envelope. Mm -hmm. Whereas the ballots in person, they don't get folded up. You know, they're just dropped. I mean, every Mm. county is different, but in general, they're kept solid. And so they had to have the poll workers have to like flatten out the ballots before they feed them through the counting machines. Mm. And so just <laughs> flattening out the ballots added a huge time delay. And, but again, like, yeah, so you have to hire a certain number of people to count them all. So like in New York City, just as an example, they had a primary in June. They actually delayed their primary because of the pandemic. They weren't quite ready for it. And so the primary ended up being in June. Like I think it was two months late. But then after they voted, they didn't actually announce the final results for six weeks because it took that long to count all the mail-in votings because they they didn't have enough people to count them, to process them and count them all. And so it was kind of a disaster in many ways. I mean, it ended up working out okay, but it was just a huge amount of uncertainty and, and a big problem for people. And so the same thing with Civ, like just as a starting place, if one person opts in a sieve, that's one less paper ballot that they have to process and and so on, you know. So it does scale linearly, if you will. Sure. I guess what's crazy to me is um, how much thought, and, and I do kind of want to maybe get into some of the details of, of how, um, you know, like maybe one specific state does it. But um, there's, there's just so much that goes into how we run our elections, right? And like you said, it's, critical infrastructure does that mean it's kind of like on par with like is that like a technical term does that mean something specific yeah it's a legal term so it means that if you are um found to be like 
trying to penetrate it, you know, trying to compromise it, that you face far more serious penalties and jail time and, and so on. Sure. Right. And so I guess like it's it's such a it's such a such a big part of American history and also just I think it, it, it contributes to the stability of of the of the nation, right? And, and its integrity, right? So it keeps us kind of united as the United States. Um, you know, right, and we've been doing this for for you know hundreds of years. Um, to see it our, our trust in it be eroded so quickly is kind of mind boggling. Um, I guess right. the I guess there's a question in there is um, what what was I mean how what was the reaction I mean do you know anything about the history of when you know when when in the early days of the republic what was what what was people's or what were people's like I guess feelings around uh, the election or like you know voting and and sort of being able to mail stuff in I mean right now. Like we have, you know, the USPS, we, we, we buy things online and stuff gets mailed to us every day. Right. Um, but back in the day, right. Like they had to, you had to literally send this, send votes on like by horseback. Right. There was no, there's no way of like, like telephoning or telegramming anything in. Um, everything was much, much newer. Stuff took a lot longer. What was the general sentiment and, and how did they, what uh, trust, what I guess I imagine must've been a kind of radical idea at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's a it's a little bit uh, it's a slightly different history because for a long time elections were not written down. So originally, yeah, what originally what happened is everybody. So you know, first and foremost, not everyone was allowed to vote. I mean, it was for the first, you know, the 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 constitution was only changed a hundred years ago to grant women the right to vote. So for the first 200 years of America, um, or 150 years of the United States of America, it was a very limited amount of people. And of course, you know, slaves aren't allowed to vote and, and so on. And so, and the way that the elections themselves were actually carried out was that you would meet in the city, you know, the town center and, you would say your vote out loud. It like it wasn't private at all. It wasn't secret at all. And so this introduction of the secret ballot, I believe it was only it was only around um, about a hundred years ago as well that they introduced the secret ballot. And before that, and yeah, I mean, there's kind of a crazy history. There used to be that you'd get these like colored ballot stamps. I think there were these like yellow ballots um, and. You would just, so if you were a valid person, they would give you one and then you just write the name on it and then you go drop it in the box. But uh, this is where um, these like voter guides came out because they just say like, these are all the people you should vote for. Oh no, depending on who you voted, it'd be like a particular color. So they could see whether you voted for um, the, the person they wanted you to or not. And so there was a lot of corruption involved. And so that's where the secret ballot first got introduced. Um, yeah, and, and just to be clear, I mean, there's voting itself goes back much further than that. I mean, the, the actual term, uh, cryptography, well, it's got two origins. One of them is it, they're both in ancient Greece, you know, it's a Greek word. There's this, uh, Spartan, like secret police called the Cryptea that was part of like the state secrecy. But then there's this other 
system. I'm blanking on what it's called, but basically the the ancient Athenians had this really cool way that you'd like drop these colored pebbles into this machine. And I think they were like they could be white or black, and this was like to decide um, whether a member, a citizen, should be exiled. Should mm. be um, oh the uh, Ostro Ostro yeah exactly the Ostraka yeah. that's right so the yeah. they had the Ostraka to decide whether people should be ostracized, and so they had this they someone had invented this machine they used the state machine where you could drop your pebble in and it would basically like randomize the orders of the of the pebbles in a in a sufficiently randomized way, so the point is just that people have been trying to figure out technology to conduct fair elections at scale for a long time and there's a large history of and every country around the world has done different things for it so it's a it's a cool field i mean it's a weird problem it's kind of different than most problems because it has to be authenticated but also private and ideally verifiable um i guess you brought up an interesting point and i didn't know this about uh the private ballot um you know, because I, I think even, you know, because a lot of the cryptography, a lot of the shuffling and stuff, um, you know, if you think about the the Senate or the House or uh, like a board boardroom for a corporation, right? And they're, they're taking a vote. Um, that's that's completely, uh, I guess, anonymous, or the opposite of anonymous, right? Um, like you, you can see who's voting, how they voted, right? And you have the history. Um, what are your thoughts on 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 that because I think in, in a lot of ways um, it, it it removes the, the problems that anonymity uh, brings, right? So there's certain trade-offs, it seems like you, in order to have an anonymity, it, it takes more effort to kind of ensure that anonymity is there and that also, you know, everyone's is preserved, um, but also that there aren't just maybe like a bunch of fake uh, people voting, right? I think that's that's been the concern. Um, this election right um and i think there's obviously there's details on like how you register and i think those are all important but um what are your thoughts i guess before we get into that what are your thoughts on public voting or, or sort of uh uh named named voting or, or pub like where the where your identity isn't anonymous yeah yeah um i mean it's tricky they both you know they have pros and cons just like any any consideration you're making and so like you say one of the pros is that it's extremely like it's pretty hard to f- hide fraud in voting when all the the names are are right there, and I think there's a good case to be made as well for when you're a smaller scale group. Um, you know, it's it's really valuable to have like face to face conversations, and sort of that anonymity can kind of like put off conversations in a certain way. So so depending on the size of your group, it might also just be beneficial just for that reason that like you don't really want to hide. Like why why are we hiding here? But then the flip side, I mean, when you're talking about like Congress people or senators, the real explanation there is just that, you know, they work for the voters that elected them. And so the voters that, you know, it's not about necessarily just their own independent choices individually. It's really about are they doing the job that they were elected to go represent? And so if they were voting anonymously, then it would be really hard to tell if they were, you know, if they were 
doing what you wanted them to be doing. So it's it's more. I would say it's more about enforcing the representation properly, and less about the logistics of the system. And there are occasionally, you know, very occasionally, you'll have um, like committees. So you know, the, the process of getting a bill is typically it has to be approved by a committee first before it gets brought to a general floor vote. And so most committees have a rule where one of the members can um, at times get a bill vetoed before it even gets out of committee. And the member that does that can do so privately. So occasionally bills will get killed. Yeah. And it's not even clear who actually did that. You know, nobody, you don't have anybody responsible that you can, that voters can hold responsible. But yeah, that's sort of the way I think about it is that it's it's really important for your rep it's really important for you to know how your representative is voting. Sure. Yeah, that was a big part of the uh, liquid democracy platform that uh, I guess that's probably a good segue into. Like the I mean, it bring, raises the question of how how do you really know how well a uh, representative is doing, right? I mean, it's it's like legislation for example that gets passed right they don't always control that if you're if your party or if they're if they're if your representative is part of the minority party or uh let's say they're the majority but they only control congress right like the democrats did um for the last two years it, it's hard to say oh they they you know they they did a bad job or a good job because you know odds are whatever legislation they tried to push isn't going to make it you know through um but what i found so intriguing about the liquid democracy platform was that you could see how your representative voted and you could weigh in on, on, on like on a bill by bill issue and you have this way of, of sort of their uh, uh, I guess uh, their constituents how they wanted their representative to, to vote right so they could actually weigh in and, and then you could compare the two like how aligned were they um, as far as I know I mean is there is there was there any other system like that and I mean, I guess how's that how's that system also going, or, or kind of what do you envision that in, in Civ, or is there is that completely separate? Yeah, oh, there's so many questions in there. I don't know where to start. Sure, I should probably start batching my questions a little. little <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, just to like, just to step back for a second, I don't. I don't know if the the people listening to this even are familiar with with what you're talking about exactly i mean you and i of course we've talked about it many times you know it's been a big part of our lives over these last few years but there's this other big movement that i have have been at uh at the forefront of for the last few years about um what i would say is upgrading the way our representative system works making it a lot easier for um individual citizens to be represented faithfully in the way that they want to be represented. And so you were asking, how does this fit with Civ? I mean, these are, these are complementary. you know, they're, they're sort of side by side. So Civ is really focused on the process of casting your vote in your existing election, making it, you know, the, the problem, the technical problem of casting votes quickly, privately, verifiably. The improving the representative system, sometimes, you know, people use the term liquid democracy. You've used the term liquid democracy. I use the term liquid democracy for many years. I actually don't even really like that term all that much anymore because I don't think it really describes what it's really about for people. I don't know if 
Yeah, I don't know. I, it's kind of like it was the language that I had heard when I first learned about this stuff. But I think it's really, I think it kind of misleads a lot of people about what it's about. Sure. To me, what it's really about is it's just like better representation, you know, representation for the modern world, 21st century representation. So, yeah, so so to to get into that, yeah, it's, um, yeah, we were, we were showing people how it can work. And the basic idea is that right now we have these elected representatives or elected congresspeople, senators, city council members, state representatives, and they get to, they get elected by, you know, in the, in the case of members of Congress, they get elected by 700,000 constituents. Each member of Congress, each congressperson has 700,000 in, in the House, has 700,000 constituents. And then so they go into these bodies and they cast a vote on behalf of those 700,000 people. And that's really wild to think about that one of these people are speaking on behalf they're representing 700,000 people and just to like make it a lot simpler or like the way that I always think about it is like how many of their constituents they actually know their name like how well can they represent you if they don't know what your name is and how well can they represent you if you didn't even vote for them I mean a lot of these people are elected you know with a lot less than 700,000 votes you know they might be elected like you know, and, and many districts, they might get 200,000 votes. And so 500,000 people didn't vote for them, and yet they're their only representative. And sometimes they voted for their opponent, you know, whether they didn't vote at all or they voted for their opponent. They're still your only representative. And I think of that, that's sort of a necessity of, um, you know, pre-internet age society. You know, if you want to run a free republic where where people you know it's consent of the governed government by the people you really do need elected representatives once you get past a very small scale you know, direct democracy is is what they did in ancient in the ancient world in ancient athens and it works on, in some places on small scales but it really falls apart as the scale gets larger and larger for a number of reasons i mean the simplest reason is just that if you are one of a million voters it's the incentive it becomes really difficult for you to really study the issues if you spent hours and hours and hours pouring into the issues how well are you going to understand it is it really worth the payoff for only uh you know a better vote as one in a million you know if all the other 999,000 do don't really study it all that well it, it, that's a really frustrating experience and so it's sort of like this tragedy of the commons or like um diffusion of responsibility problem where people just stop paying attention. And so that's why we say, okay, we need some representatives to come in and, and do the hard work of studying the proposals, studying the legislation, you know, being, being the best among us. And, but the way I look at it is like, we could do even better now. You know, that was the best we could do in 1776 and for the last few hundred years. But now we can do better. And that's really built around this idea of personal representation. So you personally get to choose who your representative is. And when you really do have a strong opinion on a particular matter before the legislature, you can represent yourself. You can vote directly. And so that's the system. That the technical term for it is um, delegative democracy. And that was sort of one of the first names for it. And liquid democracy is another name for it. Some people call it participatory democracy. 
Some people call it for connected democracy. There's a lot of names for it, but this idea of you get to pick your own representative or represent yourself uh, when you when you want to opt in. Um, I think it's a it it will be the future. I think it has the potential to massively reduce corruption. I mean, on like the largest scale of anything out there in the world right now, with maybe one or one exception. So it will be really good for the world. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of problems that exist in the world that unfortunately exist as a result of corruption. And this, you know, improving our representative system for our larger, more modern world can do great things to, to improve that. Awesome. Peter, I feel like I've been asking a lot of the questions. Do you, uh, do you have any kind of follow-ups to that? Uh, I mean, otherwise I can keep going. No, no, keep going. Yeah, I guess... Um, I mean that 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 kind of gets to the heart of 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 you know why why is democracy valuable right like why why do we you know why why not just have a philosopher king or um, you know like a, some kind of technocratic um, you know or oligarchy like you know what why why do we place so much value in in democracy and I and I. And I don't mean this kind of as insinuating it's not valuable, right? It's just, right, right. It's an just question of, opening the conversation. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important to kind of revisit that question from time to time and, and think about what you know what, what what's the point? Like why why are we you know why do we spend billions of dollars you know on elections? Why do we get so fired up when when we think our our democracy is is uh, compromised in some way? Right. Yeah. Um... It's a <laughs> it's a deep question. I mean, it's a very important question. I mean, the simplest way that I think about it is because I want to be a free person living in a free society. I mean, that's really the question: is do you live in a free society or do you live in you know some authoritarian society? And that's I mean, really that those are the two options. You have you know you said philosopher king, which puts a a kind of positive spin on it, but the important part of that is the king part. You know whether they're a philosopher or not i mean you could have philosopher presidents and philosopher legislators but the question is do you have elected leaders or do you have um like might makes right or you know the, the king is really you know it's it's who's ever the strong you know think of your favorite hbo medieval tv show it's like who led the battle that killed you know dethroned the last people and got on you know got on the throne and so I mean, I think there are places where that can be okay. I wouldn't say that it's like all all bad, but um, yeah, I mean, I personally really like living in a free society. I hope people can continue living in a free society. I think it's, it's sort of about like decency to each other. I mean, if you're, the, the thing is like when you have a king, then that means that you're like, you're kind of a slave in, in a certain way. You know, you pay taxes that you have no say over whatsoever. And so you're like contributing, you know, it's just like they're pointing a gun at you and, or some, you know, they're, they're using some threat of force on you. And for that matter, I mean, there's a really interesting dynamic. A lot of people believe that there's kind of become this belief recently that you could be wealthier under, that you'd have higher taxes in a democracy and lower taxes in a dictatorship. I mean, famously in um, South America, there were a number of dictatorships that had really low nominal tax rates. 
the thing about that is that it's kind of misleading. It's it's it's, it's very misleading because um, there's a lot of corruption, and so you're you have hidden taxes in the form of corruption. So it's like, yes, you don't have taxes written into the legal code, but you have to bribe a bunch of people to get anything done, and so your final take home pay, like the the fruits of your labor of whatever you're making, you are actually getting a lot lower than than you would otherwise. And the thing is that it's also really costly to run a dictatorship for that matter. You know, you're saying, why do we spend so much on elections? But it's extremely costly to like have a standing army that enforces your rule and keeps everyone in line and, you know, like state, you know, have the state spy on everyone. And, you know, in many situations, monarchies also have a lot of trouble facing them. Um, I don't know if that fully answers your question, but those are some of the like initial things that come to mind for me. Sure. No, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I think there's so many ways to look at it because it's such an open question. Um, I guess one way, and I want to see if you agree with this. I think to me, the, the idea of democracy in, in a lot of ways is tied to the idea of like the free market in that, um, you know, with the free market, right. Everyone's kind of free to make their own choices on what they consume, what they buy, right. what they spend money on, um, what kind of services they, they provide. And, and you're able to enter the market, exit the market, um, you can see the price, so there's some some information exchange there. Um, to me, it seemed kind of like, uh, I guess, with with a democracy, you're you're kind of like um, you're kind of like crowd sourcing uh, solutions to problems, right? And so by by having um, more people weigh in on issues um, and and kind of you know through their votes like transmit information of like hey i i think this person would be a good representative because they see what the real problems are um to me it's sort of like this this collective brain that's that's trying to like solve these collective problems totally um rather than you know this this monarch right like the what's the, the famous quote let them eat cake right like when you have this one person with, with absolute power the, the reality becomes so warped that it just you know things don't run as smoothly or they run inefficiently um, right yeah i guess i just wanted to see kind of what your your thoughts on looking at it that way were um, yeah especially especially since we talk so much about like technology right and its role like i think it we neglect the fact that we're humans behind this technology using it to kind of like 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 augment our own intelligence and computing compute power of our brains right right yeah i, I mean one way that it's sort of discussed in like um, academic history, if you will, or, or like the social sciences, is that democracy helps you prevent like the worst case scenarios. So like you could have really noble kings, if you will. I mean, you can, you know, you say philosopher kings or, you know, in some of these fictional works, you can imagine them, um, you know, and Lord of the Rings, for example, you know, they have great, great honorable kings, beautiful thing. But um, the... And that's great. And that's, that's wonderful. You know, more power to them. But the problem is when you have, you know, despotic rulers, when you have the horrible rulers that are, you know, you know, full of, full of uh, flaws and, you know, are stealing from the people and, you know, idiots and just bumbling. And maybe they, they only surround themselves with sycophants. So nobody will tell them to their face, the real problems that are going on and so on. And so, it, you can have, you know, really, really terrible situations. You know, we were talking earlier about not in, 
you and I and, and Sai were talking earlier about North Korea and just how horrible it is for the children that were born there because they have been brainwashed, you know, taught into not believing their own eyes. They're saying, like, if someone says, you know, the box is yellow, even if it's actually gray, if the government tells them that it's yellow, then they're going to tell you that it's yellow. And they just don't trust their own senses. And so that's sort of, you know, one of the really bad situations where they have extreme poverty and lack of electricity in lots of the country. And so that's where um, having a free, free electoral system can you know, really shows its benefits is that it creates this accountability mechanism against horrible governors, against horrible leaders in power. And you just need some accountability mechanism. Otherwise, things all too often, you know, kind of fall to the to, to bad situations. So it's not that you necessarily are going to get like the best solution. I, I like your framing of it's like crowdsourcing good solutions. And that is that is a cool way to think about it. I think it. I think it's almost more. It's like it asks the people what are the most important things to focus on right now. Like, you know, one candidate says, "I want to focus on X." A different candidate says, "I want to focus on Y." A different candidate says, "I want to focus on Z." And now the people get to decide. Okay, which of these do we want to prioritize right now? Assuming your actual electoral system isn't deeply flawed with you know par- you know voting systems that introduce paradoxes, which is a whole another subject. But um. Yeah, that is cool. But I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say that it's like wisdom of the crowds in the same sense of like the sciences or even at least the way it's practiced right now, really like the free market and that it's like rerouting supply and demand in a really brilliant, efficient way. At least just right now, it's not doing that. I think it is it, what it is doing is just preventing these worst case outcomes more than anything else. But I think um, having a delegative democracy system where you have many orders of magnitude more choices and the voters themselves have many more opportunities to change those choices and ideally they could even break them down by topic by topic you know who do you trust as leaders on foreign policy versus who do you trust on leaders on social policy or who do you trust on you know how do we range our tax policy versus zoning blah 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 i think that could lead to a drastically smarter government and a, and a much smarter system that responds to feedback much better so yeah that would be great so many interesting thoughts yeah where do we go next yeah you, you hopefully you can see P, why we why we have these like like why these conversations can end up going for like six hours at a time because there's so many different directions we could go from here right yeah i do i do want to before we go into one of your directions i just want to do a short little direction here you know the the sure. term philosopher king is actually um it's kind of ironic did you know that um uh, so the, no like is that like its original intent was ironic or it's just- yeah the original intent was ironic so it comes from Plato's The Republic right so Plato said you know the the, the whole book is this is this thought experiment of Glaucon asks Socrates hey Socrates how can we create the perfect republic and Socrates says oh well here's how you do it step one step two step three step four step five step six and he lay and he lays out this thousand page tome of how you would construct the perfect republic and it includes all sorts of really interesting things and it's where you get like the allegory of the cave that like people don't see the world as it really is they only see the shadows on the wall it includes lots of other you know the the ring of Keros. you know why you don't want to be a ruler 
even if you had this invisibility ring, you'd always have to be watching over your shoulder for someone to stab you in your back. That's like an amazing anecdote. And it, but then it also has this idea of um, like you want to be ruled by these philosopher kings. Like in the perfect republic, the perfect republic would have to be ruled by these philosopher kings who are the people who don't want to do the governing. You know, the only people fit to rule are those who don't want to rule is the idea, hmm. which is a it's a it's a brilliant idea. But the problem is that, um, I mean, the thing is, the, the Republic also has horrifying ideas in it as well. So step one, I'm saying step one, step two, step three, step four. So one of the most famous horrifying ideas that many people know is, um, you know, Plato talked about you need to kill all the poets. All poetry is banned. And when he said poetry, he meant all theater. You know, the poets were like the, the playwrights. Uh, like Euripides and, and so on. Um, and so he said that in in his character, Socrates, who's maybe based on the historical Socrates, says in the Republic that the poets ha- do this thing where they um, make falsehoods sound really pretty. Hmm. But they're not really after truth. They're really after beauty and for that reason, we need to ban them and kill all the poets. And that's a horrifying idea, of course. You know, he's saying no arts. Was that like a literal suggestion, like a policy decision, or more of a uh, philosophical kind of uh, there? Or he, hard to say. Like, yeah, I mean, and and so let me let me give you some other examples. He he says he also says that um, you know, so society. He he talks about how. Um, some people have what he refers to as like gold souls. Some people have silver souls and some people have iron souls, like base metal souls. And, um, you kind of need to evaluate what, what quality of soul do the different people have? And depending on the quality of the soul, then they'll be given like what sort of educational track they, they go through and what sort of job they're going to be given in the society. So only the gold-sold people can be trained in philosophy and ultimately can be trained as, as the governors. And the iron-sold people are like the permanent underclass. You know, they're doing the, the lower, the less, the less pretty work. And the way that he actually talks about it, he actually says, like, you should lie to them. Like, you should construct these, like, massive, this, like, massive state propaganda regime to, to lie to them to keep um, things stable. So that I think that's kind of horrifying. Um, it definitely goes against the American ideal of all people are created equal. You know, it says your soul is of different qualities. Then he has this other idea that's you know super horrifying. He says you know step I'm saying step one, step two, step three, step four. So step one, if you want to construct the perfect society according to the Republic, is that you. Um, go, you find a neighboring town or city or, or whatever, and you invade and you kill every single last person above the age of four. And you need to start fresh. His idea, the idea that they lay out is that if you wanted to construct the perfect society, you would need to start completely fresh. And so you should found it on this genocide. And I hope I don't need to say it. That's obviously you know hor- horrifying in a, in a million ways. These all and seem pretty extreme. Extremely <laughs> extreme. Extremely extremely extreme. This is and this is Plato, peop, like who people revere. Right. Well, but here's the thing. <laughs> now here's the part that people totally miss. You know, it's a long book. It's 
kind of, you know, it was written in ancient Greek. Not many people study it closely. The thing that people miss is that he lays out step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and on and on and on. And then in the end, the whole thing collapses. The entire thing says, even if you did all these steps to construct the perfect society, it still wouldn't work. It would still devolve into, uh, he, he goes through these levels of, you have the perfect republic, and then it falls into, I think what he calls timocracy, which is ruled by the most brave or the most courageous, which basically means a military dictatorship. And then that devolves into an oligarchy, and then that devolves into what he calls democracy, which he really means like a mob rule of like a, of like these kangaroo courts, where it's just like you know hor- you know the horrifying mob that worst mob that you can imagine, and then it devolves eventually into just a dictatorship into tyranny. And so even in this perfect thought experiment, you're gonna have this problem, and and that really gets into the like who watches the Watchmen phrase. That's where the the whole Watchmen thing comes from. Is it's a quote from the Republic. And he says basically your your governor's um, a little bit of corruption is introduced here. Oh, I forgot one of the other aspects of it is nobody's allowed to have their own children. Um, you're you're assigned your partner by the state, and then you give your children up to the state, and the state raises your children, so no family's allowed, which is also sort of thought to be this idea from in Marxist theory as well. But anyway, the point is that the whole thing is like this thought experiment that is making this ironic point of like, you can't, like even that wouldn't work. And so that's where this whole term philosopher king comes from. And so I just want to like add that, add that context to the term that the person that was proposing it wasn't actually saying that you could do this. It's sort of like you, uh, the phrase utopia. Um, utopia is Greek for no place. You know, utopia is the place that doesn't exist. It's the place that can never exist. And it's the same sort of idea. Um, actually, I think I'm, I'm at about as much time as I got for tonight. So I'm going to sign off. But I think you guys should keep keep having the conversation as long as... You know, it's interesting. As long as needed. Yes. Yeah. No. Exactly. Keep going. <laughs> so, um, really cool. Bunch of great thoughts. I'm really happy to be able to hear. Like, it's super. It's amazing that there's like a mathematical proof for uh, voting. That's yeah. That's like a big takeaway for me. So. Anyway, awesome. well, yeah. Thanks for uh, thanks yeah. for joining, Pete. I know we we yeah. had the technical issues at first. We'll get those sorted out in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this, better. This, this this also won't be like the last time. No, no, no. Talk, so yeah. Um, so yeah, anyway, think, uh, continue on. Great. Cool. See you guys later. See you later, right. Peter. Great chatting. I guess uh, I guess let's circle back to the kind of the original point. Um, Philosopher kings, Greek democracy. I mean, it's it's. Uh, yeah, and yeah. There's there's so many there's so many interesting dimensions to this. I think um, I guess you know at risk. I don't also don't want to make this this podcast too long. Um, I'm usually cutting it off around hour and a half to two hours. So um, let's, I think we should shoot for that. Um, but uh, I guess in, in a practical sense, right? Um, Civ or uh, kind of what we what we worked on earlier of like the liquid democracy. Um, what would that take to, or let's just, let's just talk about specifically? What would that take to get it implemented in 
uh, a local government or a state government or something, whether it be a ballot measure that has to get passed with the, uh, you know, would have to get signed into law, um, you know, and, and for that matter, like any kind of voting. Uh, well, let's, let's stick to Civ actually, because I, I tend to bunch my questions. Um, <laughs> but w what would it take to get it implemented uh, so that people could have this option? Yeah, so elections are controlled by counties, by individual counties. And so there's 8,000 counties across the U.S. that each, a little bit more than 8,000 counties across the U.S. that each carry out their own elections. Okay. And so each county, you know, depending on where you live, your county would have to offer it. And so the way in which your county offers it is going to be, um, it's basically... You, you need a few different people to sign off. So you need the actual people running, you know, there's a Department of Elections, you know, or it has a few different names, but it's generally like the Department of Elections, the people that run, that actually hire all the poll workers and tabulate all the votes and so on. And so they have to, um, you know, sign up for CIV and, and offer it to their voters. This is, sorry, each county and has a Department of Elections. Yeah, I mean, they're called different things, okay. but effectively, yes, each county has a Department of Elections. Got it. And so then they would, so for example, let's just say, like in, uh, I guess, what would it be, San Francisco County? Or San Francisco has several counties in it? Or is that several districts? San Francisco itself is interesting that it's both a city and a county. It's a little yeah. unusual about that. Typically, a county has multiple cities within it, but San Francisco is both a county and a city. Got it. So say um you know next two years from now right when next next election cycle um san francisco and let's i guess so the county of san francisco let's say they're able to approve using civ as a valid like secure voting mechanism that they've you know they've decided this is something that they want to use would those and then say they tabulate the votes everyone votes electronically those votes would then just go kind of towards the national or I'm sorry, not, well, I guess in some ways it could be, um, well, just, I guess it would be like the state or congressional or, or kind of whatever, um, elections they're running. Um, and then those would cut, and then if a different, if a different county is using sort of paper ballots, would those all just sort of get tabulated together? Yeah, exactly. Um, each, each county has, you know, their own, um, leeway to carry out the elections they want to do it. So some provide this, some provide that. And so then the counties report their totals up to the, I mean, if it's a statewide election, they would report them up to the Secretary of State. Now, the the problem that I, that you're kind of revealing here, alluding to, is that there are some state level regulations as well. So the county of San Francisco doesn't actually have unilateral ability to adopt CIV because the Sacramento, the, go the state government based in Sacramento for California currently right now uh, doesn't allow for any electronic delivery of voting, of votes for regular citizens. There's these carve outs for what are called basically overseas voters, people in, in other countries. But for regular citizens, uh, this, the state does not allow individual counties to accept votes online. And so in the state of California's case, there would also need to be um, a change in the, the state legislature would have to update that. Or 
because California has a ballot initiative system, there could be a statewide ballot initiative. Got it. That updates that. That makes that allows the county to offer it. I mean, in theory, you could also have a statewide regulation that requires all counties to offer it. Interesting. Um, there's a little bit of flexibility there. So you could kind of word it. Either but way. the state of California, yeah, right. But California right now does not allow it. There's, I think, there's ten states in the U.S. that do allow electronic delivery right now. So those are definitely the places that we're talking to first. Nice. Just because it's less less red tape to have to cut through to sure begin getting in people's hands. And then you don't have to, you know, hey, run a whole ballot measure and wait that election cycle or multiple election cycles, right, um, to get all signatures and then get on the ballot and whatever. I guess, um, hmm. I guess I had a follow up to that. The when you say electronic delivery, uh, that was that was kind of the nuance there. How does, um, you know, when when you in each county is tallying up their votes, right? And then, do, do at some point do all the ballots have to go to one central location for them to be certified, or how, what are they when you like can they call in or there's someone who calls in and says okay this this county has x number of votes like do they like how do they send this is this is the the final tally for this county or like what what's that actual process look like let's i don't know is it different in every state or is california like what do they do in california what does that look like right so it's it's relatively standard across the states um so you cast your vote on a piece of paper right now and then that piece of paper, you might do it in person at your local polling place. So like, just by coincidence, I haven't have a polling place right outside my window, right across the street. I mean, it practically couldn't be closer. You're definitely hacking. Uh, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just kind of ironic that I'm one of the people working on internet voting when I have like the easiest polling <laughs> option. Just by coincidence, I happen to live across the street from the polling place. It's at the library right across the street. Yeah. There's a, but, um, uh, sorry, quick tangent. There's a funny meme I saw because yeah. this is a, this sounds like a programmer kind of problem. It's like, uh, you know, you can either try to do, you can either do the manual task that takes like six minutes or you can, you know, try to automate it using six hours and fail ultimately at, at actually. Right. It. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the, the hope, though, is that your six hours of automation work can then be adopted by a million other people so that it can make up, you know, now a million people save six seconds. And so you end up saving more than six hours worth of total time. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah, and it's funny, in this past election, so we were given vote by mails, but because I wanted I wanted to deliver the ballot directly to the county election administrators rather than giving it to the federal USPS workers and then have them bring it to the county election administrators. I wanted to drop off my ballot at, at a drop-off location run by the county people. And so I went to go, I filled out my ballot and I went to go bring it over and I missed them by like 10 minutes. They were closing up for the day. It was like 5 p.m. It wasn't even that late. But they were already packing up. They said, oh, we're so sorry. You're going to have to come back tomorrow. And they're like, oh, that must be so annoying. How far you drove to get here? And I was like, no, that's my house right across the street. <laughs> but I'm going to make an internet system. So next time I don't even have to worry about it closing at 5 p.m. <laughs> to avoid this whole thing in the first place. <laughs> Love it. Um, 
But sorry, yeah. The, but back to your question. Yeah. So you take your vote, you deliver it. Let's say you deliver it to your local precinct. So just in San Francisco, as an example, we have uh, on a normal non-pandemic year, we have like 217 precinct uh, polling places, something like that, throughout the city. So it's a pretty good number just for one city. Um, it's you know, San Francisco is very pro making voting easier, which is nice. And uh, but every just on the flip side of that, you know, that does lead to a lot of cost because every one of those has to be staffed by a bunch of people. You know, you need at least like four people at all times and every one of them. And like you have to have at least two people with line of sight eyes of where the ballots get the boxes, that the ballots get collected in at all times. And then the ballots have to all be driven to City Hall, where the Department of Elections is, that actually runs them through all the Scantron machines, the, the tabulating machines. And so that drive has to have two people in the car the whole time. And the idea is like you want the redundancy, like any one person might do something nefarious, but if you have multiple people, it just makes it, a, you know, you need everyone to, to defect in order for the election to go wrong. It's sort of the same thing we were talking about before with the shufflers. You need every last one of them to defect. But in, when you have a paper system, when you're trying to run 200-odd precincts, that just requires way more poll workers. I mean, thousands of poll workers just for this one city alone, just to carry out the vote. Sure. Um, and so back to your question. So then the votes all get taken. They get dropped off at your local polling place, and they get brought into City Hall. For, for us, in, our, in San Francisco's case, I can't, you know, other states might do it a little differently. And then they feed them all through these electronic Scantron machines. Scantron is a private company, but it's, you know, for whatever reason, people understand what that means. Mm -hmm. They're not actually the company Scantron, but they read the machines and they read the votes. And then they publish, the this, this counties publish um, all their tallies. So you can go on their website and you can see this candidate has gotten this many thousands of votes and this other candidate has gotten this many thousands of votes and this other candidate. And so they'll, they'll be updating those, you know, maybe once an hour, once every six hours or, or, you know, whatever their rate of, this is when we'll post the next update is. And then they report, so all the, ta the votes themselves are counted at the at the votes themselves are counted at the county level. <laughs> I can't help but notice the, yeah similarity there the i wonder if <laughs> that can't that can't possibly be uh intentional that the counties do the counting the counties are named because they do the counting <laughs> I, I want, i'm gonna have to look that yeah, up yeah that's a <laughs> it's funny because sometimes like words like that they it's it's like a case of like convergent evolution where it's just unrelated right but totally i could kind of see that also because i mean like why why else would you organize it that way right like you kind of want to divvy it up into each county. <laughs> it seems like the kind right. of word that would arise for, for the for particular use case. Right. But anyways. Instead of being called counties, they should be called counters. Counters. Counteds. Because they're doing the counting. <laughs> We're the counties. We're the ones being counted. That's true. We voters. I mean, I guess, like, so, like, a count, count is like a title, right? Like. Right, right, right. The Count of Monte Cristo. Exactly. So, does the count preside over the county? Yeah. Now you're in a viscount as well. Now you're making me really wonder. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. 
Anyway, so then, yeah, the counties report their election totals up to the state. The state themselves don't actually count any votes. They just, they might sum up all the individual counties' totals, and, you know, and uh, every state might have a few dozen counties. Hmm. And so then the state certifies their results. So that's what's going on right now for this uh, most recent presidential election. The states are in the process of certifying their results. I think, like, 20 states now or so have certified their results or a bunch are, are just doing it today and sure it's um does that answer your question yeah no it, it does it's um it's funny because like i i realized like and this one of the challenges i had when i was thinking about coming into this podcast was so much of how we frame like you said when when you drive the ballots or whatever you need nefarious actors on both sides i mean i think a lot of uh so much of it is like how how we even frame frame the the subject um and and that's the funny thing about politics is there's there's um built into politics is this the idea almost of like controlling the narrative or controlling the optics around a story or trying to spin things um in in a favorable kind of way in in order to gain political power or leverage right um right and what's what's kind of crazy too is that they're the people writing the rules so they get to decide what's what's right or wrong um and you know because they're so they're they're the ones setting the rules to the game, um, so th- so there's a lot of like layers I think to kind of peel back before you can kind of see like what's actually really going on. I think it's it's we naturally, um, and, I, and I'm gonna <laughs> this is gonna be sort of meta, but it seems like human beings have this natural tendency to come up with narratives and 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 they're not scientific in that they they try to test things. They really just come up with narratives and then look for evidence for those narratives right um and and so much of it's like the narrative that we tell ourselves about what's what's happening in the world what's happening in the election because it's just it's so complicated you have to have the simplified version of of reality um and i'm, I'm even doing it right now like in, in terms of kind of framing framing the problem <laughs> yeah the frame the framing the way in which we frame things <laughs> yeah i use i use the narrative to to talk about the narrative um Right, but what's well, sort of like the map is not the territory. What's that? The map is not the territory. Like if you wanted to show everything, it would take something the size of the universe. Right, exactly. Um, but you know, maps have their use, right? If if it's if it's to scale and, and it's not distorted, totally. right? Um, so I think there's I think there's value in, in having and in crafting and in, in trying to craft a, a helpful narrative that you know lets you kind of navigate the the world, which is I guess kind of what a map is. Um. I guess the if there's a question and all that it's um i mean so like a good good example is like the two-party system right it's it's funny that it's called the two-party system when, when it's not really we didn't we didn't like the founding fathers didn't say all right there's gonna be one party on the left one party on the right um <laughs> you know like like and you guys figured out um but it, it's funny too like how much um you know, of like conspiracies or, or whatever, it hinges on on the idea that you you have this one party that's that's nefarious and they're getting away with all this stuff, and the other party is is just the victim somehow. And it's it's kind of funny that both sides sort of think that of each other. And now, I guess, I, you know, I guess there's so many different ways. I wanna I wanna frame this as a concrete question because um, you know, tie tie it back. I mean, you don't have to. I can give you questions if you want. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever see Step Brothers? <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. He, uh, Should we just become best friends? <laughs> no, that's we became best friends a while ago. No, um, it was uh, that scene where he's like, "No, I, I, I'm interviewing you now." 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, like, flip the script. I guess the... I guess if I think of a concrete question around that is... Uh, I, I guess the, the question is, like, how much of it do you think is crafted conflict or, or sort of, like... Or is it or is it more like a, just a natural human... Um, you know, I, I know, like, certain voting systems tend to evolve towards a two-party system naturally, like, first past the post, right? But how much of this this tribalism and, and narrative is sort of just natural to humans, you think? And how much of it, and, and also maybe amplified by Twitter and technology versus how much of it's like, like stoked and sort of, you know, just, just like, you know, and I guess this is, this is sort of the more believable conspiracies in my mind where there's these elites that sort of, uh, you know, they they know that they're pushing these false narratives like they they know that they're biased they know that they have these agendas um it's just so it just seems so hard to believe that they that they really think that they're telling the truth you know like i'd, I'd be more comfortable kind of believing that they know they're lying rather than thinking that they're actually telling the truth in a lot of cases right now or or their their version of the truth you know right Right, right, right. Lying liars and the lies they tell. What is it? Some book. It was a book that um, what's his name? Al Franken wrote. Um, what's yeah? So where's the question exactly? <laughs> yeah. Um, is it is it is it all is it all a global cabal conspiracy? Not, is that the question? Not so much that it's like a global oh, conspiracy, how, but I mean, how much of it is? I mean, on the inner circle, right? Like, or the the kind of top echelon, like, or people who are currently in office. Maybe maybe some sort of like, you know, oligarch kind of billionaire class. Like, um, you know, how much of them really like know? How, I guess do they do they? You think they think about the system differently? Like, okay, I need to like move these pieces in in this way, while the majority of people are stuck in this sort of two party like butting heads sort of thing. Like, how much of it of like the conflict that you see on TV and stuff is really just for show? It's like pro wrestling or anything else. Totally. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I really love this phrase political theater. Yeah. I think that's sort of what you're getting at here. Sure. You know, how much of it is just political theater? Yep. Um, there's definitely a lot of it, but it's not, it's not necessarily that it's, um, like fake for the sake of being fake. I think what a lot of it, I mean, uh, there's some exceptions here and there, of course, that, you know, like, I can think of one particular exception, but the, the I think the people that are really the most tied in to the levers of party politics, like the people that are in the, the DNC inner circle and the RNC inner circle, for them, it does, it's just, it, it's like, you know, how do we stay on to power, stay in power? And how do we, um, you know, make the other side look, as horrible as possible and so they are doing political theater but it's not to distract people so much as to actually stay under power stay under power i mean if they're better at the theater they will be in power and if they're worse at the theater they will get fired they'll lose their jobs and they will lose the reins of power and all the associated money and influence and acclaim that comes with it um i think you're saying like maybe there's these other people who are who kind of play both sides against each other, who are like dividing and conquering. Um, you, you said like these billionaires moving the chess pieces. 
I think that there is some of that to a certain extent. I mean, certainly, like, at, there was a time in which the news channels claimed to be neutral. You know, they, I, I, I feel like they've, they don't claim that nearly as much over the last four years. I mean, I guess they do still. You know, Fox's tagline is fair and balanced, and all the news channels say they're just yeah. giving you the truth. Yeah. But I, they definitely tr- have a major role to play in the day-to-day conversation of nationwide affairs and political affairs while claiming to not be partisans, while claiming not to be tied to one uh, one side or the other side. The thing is that, you know, all of these organizations, the Foxes and the CNNs and the MSNBCs of the world or the Breitbarts of the world or whatever, the New York Times of the world, every single one of these organizations are for-profit companies. Mm-hmm. And so their incentive, you know, they sort of have this tension between as citizens, what do they want to see? You know, who do they want to see in power and what sort of rules and regulations do they want to see enacted? But then on the flip side of that, it's also how do we sell newspapers? Yep. How do we sell eyeballs to advertisers? And we need to get as much eyeballs as possible. And so they, these for-profit media organizations, which every single one of the major ones are, um, need to um, you know, constantly drum up the scandals of the day and the breaking news of the day. And it's a lot more about their incentives of just selling eyeballs than it is about this is something that you actually deserve some amount of your time versus other much more important things that really deserve more of your time, whether in your family life or, or you know, in our shared spaces, you know, the, the long-standing problems that don't get as much attention that are there and growing but don't make for good headlines. Sure. I guess it's, you know, the, my immediate thought after you saying that was like there's an element of personal responsibility to kind of wake up and not not buy into every every everything you see and and hear um and i don't know it's, it's tricky right because i think there is a lot of injustice and i i mean you, you and i have conversations where i'll get fired up about something and and sometimes i'll even like say extreme things but you know it's it's another thing to kind of act on it like i i i never really got into twitter luckily so i don't have like a ton of stuff that i can go have go back and like bite me but um you know, it like I, I think there there's a role to like for like outrage to play in the world, but I also think it's just it's gotten so um like and and maybe it really is just amplified by technology. We just have so many information sources that the the like the like co- the kind of content that like gets created, the dial has been cranked way up on the outrage or the, the extreme extremeness or the spin right. because that's what's necessary to track the attention right like the the baseline's now so high um totally and like you said there, there's like there's other maybe more important things to direct your attention to that that they don't have an incentive toward to have you in, as an individual um to direct your attention to like family life fitness eating healthy like having actual productive conversations on like a podcast or something right um right and uh it's it's again i I don't know whose whose responsibility that is i I think it's it's got to be a combination of individual but also you know there's got to be rules to this game and and 
and that's that's the way this is why this topic so like like feels like endless to me because again that goes into okay well rules about censorship and what you can or can't say on these platforms or the kinds of advertising you can and can't do and like restrictions to advertising to children um you know that sort of thing like well who makes those rules what's the government and they're they're the thing that we're talking about that has the problem or has the issue right right um but they're the ones who also kind of need to solve it so it's this kind of perpetual there's not a clear entry point it's like a gordian knot of some kind yeah, I saw a headline about two hours ago that apparently the Solomon Islands, uh, just east of New Zealand, mm-hmm. are now banning Facebook. Hmm. Or they, they have just introduced the rule. It's not really clear how it's going to be enforced, but the idea is that the entire island is, not, is now not going to be allowed access to Facebook. And apparently they're trying to meet with the uh, ISPs to like block it at the, at the ISP level. Interesting. And... They said they claim that it's for the purpose of national unity. Hmm. That Facebook is is dividing the the population. But here's the thing: there were apparently, I mean, I only learned about this from some random news article, you know, two hours ago. So take it with whatever grain of salt that deserves. Apparently, there was some big scandal that just leaked a few weeks ago. That it turns out that they had actually like badly misused a bunch of covid funds the government the current administration badly misused a bunch of covid funds and now everyone's really upset and they were sharing it and spreading it on facebook and so the opposition is saying you're just trying to ban facebook because you don't like that we're criticizing you on there sure and so it's exactly like you're saying of like are these rules you know can we trust these government actors to be making these rules around you know that are about them about what we can and can't say about them yeah that's and that's a great point. yeah yeah i mean it's it's who watches the watchman again going back to the republic and i i mean the thing i'd say about twitter so i used to be a really heavy twitter user i mean like m- multiple hours a day if you will at least reading not so much you know occasionally writing too but um, I feel like the 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 conversation on Twitter went way downhill about a year or two ago. Mm-hmm. When I first joined, maybe five years ago, something like that, six years ago, it was all like amazing content that I felt like was really improving my life. That I was like glad to know it was like really cool science, really cool research, really funny content, like tons of jokes. Um, just like great things that I was like always grateful to to be coming across, and then over the last few years, yeah, it's just turned into like the world is falling apart, apocalypse, apoc- you know, everything's horrible. We're so angry at this group now. We're so angry at this group now. We're so you know, you scroll through and it's like ten posts are all telling me that I need to be angry at ten different groups all at the same time, and they're all you know in totally different topics, and I. Th- think what's going on is exactly what you sort of described there that the you know they, they have this engagement algorithm or algorithms to, to design the news feed what gets shown to people and i suspect unintentionally they discovered that people share outrageous things really quickly and engage with outrageous things and so just like massively has now over optimized for that and led to people both you seeing that and then other people sharing it more and just exponential growth there. Hmm. And it's just made the whole thing exhausting. So I just quit it. I mean, I just deleted the app six months ago or something like that. 
And I haven't, I mean, I deleted Facebook years ago. Um, I mean, I at least deleted the app. I still, the account's still somewhere. But so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. I mean, it's the exact same thing that we were saying before about the, these media companies. I mean, these are for-profit media companies that are working to their own agenda of how do we increase ad revenue. They're not working to the agenda of how do we actually improve your life. And again, the, the way I think about this is that, you know, it's really about your information diet. It's like, is consuming this piece of information strengthening my mind or is it weakening my mind? You know, is it is it just making me angry at some invisible ghost that I'm actually powerless to do anything about and doesn't really matter? Or is it like educating me or making me grateful or making me positive or making me stronger in some way or connecting me with cool new people in some way? Sure. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like if you're just eating junk food all the time, it's not going to be good for your body. And if you're just eating informational junk all the time, it's not going to be good for your mind. And so I I am, yeah, I am worried about it. But then on the flip side, like, thank God that we as right now in our current scheme, we can choose to just turn these things off. And so I've totally unplugged for the most part from those particular platforms. And I'm pretty happy with the, with that so far. Sure. Yeah, I, uh, I, after watching Social Dilemma, I deleted all the uh, social media apps off my phone. Um, and it helps. I mean, I think it's it's good to good to kind of remember that. I think it's it's tricky, right? Because then it gets into the question of what's what's what constitutes healthy information, right? I think we, I mean, I guess I guess in a lot of ways we didn't really know what good nutrition was. I think it we have a pretty good idea now, but I think what's kind of missing is maybe you know, personalized nutrition. And I think that we'll probably see some innovations there. Um, meaning like, you know, every body type or depending on your micro, micro, um, microflora, Biome. like microbiome, um, yeah. in your gut, like certain, certain foods or genetics, right. Probably, uh, probably have a certain kind of diet recommendations, but as far as information diet, like, what does that, what does that mean? And I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately too, just cause maybe the season or whatever, I, I do want to uh, spend some time and, and sort of take a step back and, and learn stuff, right? I think I'm setting a goal for myself right. to learn more about machine learning and, and just read more books kind of over the winter since the weather's sort of cooling down and I'm just kind of more in hibernation mode. But um, but but like there's not a hard, just kind of like with the, the thing of the representatives doing a good job, right? I think the, the liquid system you came up with was was cool because it, it really is like a, a me, it seemed like a meaningful metric for quality of information. Right now, the only metric is profit, right, for these companies. And I, I, I don't want to necessarily say that's a bad thing, but it's it's the only thing we have. And I think there's there's got to be more to it. I mean, I, a good, I think a good way to start is maybe asking a question of how much time is, like, what's, how much time should and I don't want to speak for everyone, but how much time should I spend on social media per day optimally, right? Just to, because there's probably some benefit of staying informed, staying connected, like entertainment, but you know, it can't be, there's only 24 hours in a day, so it can't be all of it, right? You got to sleep and eat and stuff. Um, right. So what's, what's a, what's a healthy amount and then figure out, okay, well, how do we, how do we decide? I mean, is, is it like those, um, those like mood tests? I don't know if you've heard about the ones where they ask, uh, who like how do you feel um they would call people up randomly and say how do you feel how are you feeling right now like in a, like a happiness level 
And then they say, what were you doing right. like five minutes before? And the happiest people were like gardening and the least happy people were like on social media. Um, yeah. So, so like there's creative ways. I would never have thought of that, I think. And so we need those kinds of studies. We need those kind of creative approaches to, to studying this, this phenomenon, um, which, yeah. which we didn't, which we don't, which we haven't done. And I, I, frankly, those companies don't really have too much of an incentive to do i mean there's just so many billions at stake like there's more more benefit to just figuring out how do we make this more addictive or more partnerships or more growth in more countries oh my god so listen listen you're you're this is like a couldn't be a more perfect segue for this project that a friend of mine's been working on for years Hmm. so he has he started maybe 10 years ago this free um mood tracking app for for cell phones and so just like you're talking about, you know, it will ping you at random times and say, how, you know, how happy are you on a scale of one to 10? Mm-hmm. And I'll ask you, you know, you can say you're feeling anxious. You can say you're feeling hopeful. You know, it, it gets into that sort of thing. And then what he's done. So that was that was what it originally started with. And he's gotten millions of people to download it and use it on radio. And so it creates this jur- personal journal for you of your mood and you can see your your mood level changing throughout the day all the time then he's taking it one step further and he's asked people he said okay we've now developed this machine learning algorithm that will um totally opt in only if you want you can allow it access to your webcam (laughs) and then it will ping you how do you feel and you'll be tre- training your own personalized machine learning algorithm of what your facial expression is and how that's tied to your mood. And so now it can kind of guess how you feel without you even needing to, to self-report. And then if you, you do that, now he takes it one step further and he says, okay, on Android, um, you can if you want, you can grant this app full background permissions across all apps this only works on android it doesn't work on ios because of the way uh, app permissions work but now if you opt into this new system now this will tell you when you use different apps whether they make you happier or sad just by taking you know snapping a random picture of your face every 30 seconds or something and, and evaluating it with your own personalized model that you previously had trained and so then you can have that report of what apps make you happy and what apps make you sad. And then he wants to take it one step further. This is the really mind-blowing part. If all this wasn't wasn't cool enough already, he has been talking to a number of um, finance, uh, you know, financiers, Wall Street, Wall Street type people, to basically create a new stock market. Where the apps, the apps, every app gets its own security, you know, gets its own stock that can be traded. And the security is tied to how much happiness it generates for its users. And so now the apps, and if the apps generate more, they can borrow more money and they have access to more capital. And they're the people that invest in them um, see profits. And so the idea is... This creates an entirely new positive financial incentive for apps to actually increase users' mood and happiness. 
crazy and so it's that yeah it's that, super crazy and what's interesting to me about it is it's that um that that last piece of you're you're trying to um i guess like like the the financing part is like you're creating this abstraction for happiness that ha- like ties directly into financial value um, right fascinating i'd be very curious to see the progress what's the what's what's that person's name and, and i guess what's the app well listen i don't i don't want to i'm not sure if i'm allowed to be talking about it publicly so i don't want to speak okay say their name um i mean this is they've been working on it for a while i mean i haven't caught up with them and this, they were working on this in 2018 you know so three years at least three years ago and we haven't caught up in maybe 18 months. So I'm not really sure about the latest. And I, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to say their name without their permission. Sure. Um, All good. I, I just want to leave it at that. But I do think this is, this is an interesting, you know, segue into like the next, I mean, just as we kind of wrap this up, um, you know, I think we, we are looking to kind of do more, more guests on this podcast. So I think maybe like a first intro would be great. And then see if they're interested in talking about, about this, this work. Um, you know, kind of more open totally. or whatever. But uh, yeah, that, I, I I think we just we've totally just scratched the surface of what we can do with machine learning, um, and just creative <laughs> applications, sure. right? Like, there's a lot of really like silly apps out there, um, and I and I, I see the the fun, I guess, in them. I guess if I was a teenager, I'd probably be more entertained, like ones where you can turn yourself into like an anime character or <laughs> whatever it is. But um, but there's some really like crazy kind of practical. Uh, like applications to, I mean, all kinds of things. And we, we just, it's like all that's kind of missing is like creativity behind it and, and directing the algorithms to doing the thing that you want. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, it's the ultimate tool. It's the tool that builds other tools. It's pretty wild. And I, were you, were you and I the ones that were talking about this before that the, the metaphor of like, Okay, so we're creating these machine intelligences, these synthetic intelligences. You know, they learn so much in, in you know, X amount of time. You know, you train it, you give them this much training data to teach them. Yep. But if you compare that to like a baby, you know, a real human baby, mm-hmm. I mean, humans are pretty dumb for the first, certainly for the first year or two. They can't even speak. Mm-hmm. And then, um, <laughs> and then speak. even, you know, legally speaking, well, I mean, they just, they can't even make, you know, they, they don't know how to speak. Yeah. Not, I no, mean, nothing against them. Yeah. It's just the nature of being a baby. And then from a legal point of view, we say like, okay, you're not even, we don't even trust you with being like a full member of our society that's able to vote until you're at least 18 years old. And, and like, we don't trust you to, to operate a car until you're at least you know 16 years old. And so... We've already had this built-in notion that like human intelligence grows over a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so if you think about like GPT-3, you know, GPT-3 is only what, six months old right now? And so yeah. <laughs> what's it going to look like when it's 16? What's it going to look like when it's 18? Like if this is what it's like when it's six months old, oh man, are we in for, for quite a ride? That's, I mean, that's that's a good point. I guess it's, I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it, right? Because there's... There's a, I mean, like, it, how do you really compare apples, apples and oranges, right? Like the, of course, the kind of hardware we run on, the amount of power we use, 
but then again like the amount of like human time and effort and cost and food and and society that has to exist to support you know human life and all the i mean you know you, you got you can factor in all the years of, of education i think i mean it's the general sense i have is that the algorithms kind of max out based on the model that you use for how they're trained so like gpt3 might might become like very very conversant right but you know again like the things like the math right i guess you could kind of like add on pieces but it starts to feel kind of like patchworky right and i think the the general consensus is like you want this sort of one one algorithm like linguistics algorithms used to be you know really complicated for google translate and things like that but then they, right. they scrapped all that and they scrapped the, the sort of like language models to just like a machine learning model that was just essentially that and it produced much better results um but it's not like continuing to train it on more and more like translation will will turn it into a self-driving car model right like so there's there's i guess constraints based on like how you're setting up like what data it's being trained on and and i guess what inputs and i guess outputs or what control it has like right now it's just a text interface right but um there's not like i don't know video feed interfaces or or can't like control physical objects in, in reality but i guess we'll see when we start hooking more more like outputs and more like input sensors to these things and just sort of saying okay, okay go go explore the world um you know see, see what we can do there it might be interesting Yes, I, I agree with you without a doubt that like the visual processing system is a totally different thing than the than the linguistic processing system. But the counterpoint there is that like, you know, there's humans without visual processing systems and yeah. they seem awesome. I mean, they're wonderful people. True. And so um I don't know. And it I I don't know the state of the art of this particular research, but I imagine that you know, there's this whole ensemble, you know, this whole work on ensembling is like given a particular problem, which model do we want to use? Um, which model do we think will, will give us the strongest answer for this type of problem? Sure. And so you could imagine some central like delegating uh, model that <laughs> that's whole job is just say, okay, do we give this one to the linguistic system? Do we give it to the visual system? Do we give it to the you know some other system yeah i guess in that like who decides what delegating model to use to right um but it but it because then it, it's like as soon as you add a new piece onto the machine you're kind of like it's like okay how do you decide what piece to add on it, it's really fascinating too because it's just it's it really hits at the heart of like consciousness and what's uniquely human and what what can brains do like what what can we do that machines can't do right there's not every year it seems like it's less and less right and sure you have all these specialized systems but it's it's not like it's it's not like it's slowing down or or, or these algorithms are getting dumber right it's just it's just kind of overwhelming it feels like it's just everything's accelerating at such a fast pace that i just i mean i know we've, we've kind of gone way off tangent um because originally we were talking about democracy but just the things that you can it's do okay. with deep fakes now and and how convincing that is like you can generate photorealistic faces that aren't from real people. Um, right. We're not animated we're not ready, too. Like as a democracy or as a society, I think it, it to us it's kind of like this is cool. This is cutting edge. This is wow. It's not magic, but it's it's 
awesome but to some like most people on the planet like they I don't, I don't think they'd be able to properly contextualize what what this means and and uh how to i don't know just fact check and i don't know just not not let this like destroy them um but i don't know maybe maybe people will figure it out I'm, I, it's just so hard to say yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think I don't worry about it quite that much. I mean, I think there is a lot of like hand wringing about, um, you know, oh, we're all oh, we're all in trouble. I mean, the way that I would think about it more is like there used to be a time that it was pretty hard to fake photographs and then Photoshop came along and now it's trivially easy to fake photographs. And so people have learned that, oh, yeah, it's pretty easy to fake photographs now. Yeah. And so they just don't trust them anymore. And in the same way, like right now, we're 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 still at the very beginning of this technology um, becoming widely available. But twenty years from now, I would hope that it's just kind of taken for granted that, like, oh yeah, that's some computer generated video. Don't don't worry about it too much. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I guess we'll have systems to kind of watch over those systems. I. Man, I can't imagine like kids, kids growing up now, like really young kids, like living through this pandemic, like and the, and then to the kind of world they'll grow up in, like after and just with with AI and social networks and all that, it's really crazy to imagine. Um, I don't want to say I feel bad for them necessarily. Um, no, I'm excited for them. Are you kidding? I don't know I if I'm excited for them, them either, though. Like it because it it could go. It could I could see it going so many ways. I don't want to you know, and again, I don't want to be like that old old timer who's like you know back in my day like things were so good because right <laughs> um but it's 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 more complicated i think i think most people would agree that stuff's more complicated now um right and yeah well i mean going back to to the government stuff i mean the point of government is ideally to, to provide some stability and like to respond to our shared problems and the challenge is just that our government works at a particular pace it's famously quite slow and yet our world is changing at a quick pace and a increasingly you know an accelerating pace mm-hmm. according to you know certain you know relatively easy to make the case that it's accelerating mm-hmm. and so that question it, it really leads one i mean it it, it makes obvious um yeah like what sort of problems do we face that we're unable to to address collectively and and you know go this is i'm glad you raised this because i really do want to kind of bring this back to the governance piece i mean politics we were talking before about politics is theater politics is two parties blah 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 a lot of bullshit a lot of you know whatever it is misinformation but that's that's like a it's like a corruption of what politics is supposed to be i mean the the word politics you know, it's, it's polis, you know, it comes from the, the polis is the city, you know, like the Acropolis is the high city or the necropolis is the city of the dead. You know, it's the, the polis is the city. And so politics are the affairs of the city, the issues of the city, the, the, the problems that we face as a community. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's supposed to be about. That's the goal. Like the issues really matter. The, idiotic tribal my team good their team bad that stuff really gets in the way 
and it's fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. Theater is really fun and, and addicting. And I'm not in any way saying we should ban all the all the playwrights. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that's you know that's sort of where it comes from. You know, shut down CNN. It's fake news. That's the modern an analog to kill all the poets. Um, yeah. But but anyway, but the point that I'm just trying to get at is that I think that we really ought to be investing a lot more time and energy and discussion and and trials and hard work into figuring out how we can improve our governance. Hmm. And that's what my life has been over the last five years. And I, you know, there's a cohort of, of a bunch of us working on this sort of stuff, you know, thousand people out there in the world working on how can we use technology to really improve governance and these, you know, these, I love these people more than anything. And I wish that there were a million people like this. And so, I mean, listen, I'm really grateful for you for, for helping to get this to a wider audience. So working to host these conversations and get these in front of more people. Cause I mean, it really does matter. I mean, there's just so many questions whether, yeah, what do we do about deep fakes? That's one question, mm-hmm. but also like, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Like, do we want to close the restaurants or not? Sure. You know, do we want to have a curfew at 10 p.m.? Do we want to, you know, just how do we want to respond to that? Do we want to provide subsidies to businesses that have been hit hard? Do we want to keep the gyms open? You know, there's there's a lot of questions that we're asking as communities. And so if we could, we it would be really great if we could improve the way that we're dealing with these sorts of things and leaving it all in the hands of, the CNNs and the Foxes and and you know these for-profit uh, companies of the world. Not that there's anything wrong with making a profit, but just their agenda is different than our agenda. And so I think we could be doing a lot better. And and I think we'll we'll get there. I mean, more and more people are learning about this stuff sure. every day, and more and more people are trying experiments. But yeah, I'm I'm quite frankly I am optimistic. I mean, I think it's there. It will be bumpy. There's no question. Like we're gonna keep running into all sorts of new problems, but the world is getting better and better in a million ways every day. Sure. So yeah, I, I'm, at the end of the day, I'm optimistic. You know, I guess I am too. And I think that goes back also to kind of what I said about, um, you know, narrative. It's, I, I, you know, and we could, we, could, we, there's so many rabbit holes I'd, I'm tempted to go down, but um, I'll try to start wrapping things up. Um, you know, it's hard to really know, like, Cause I've had a very good life and a very, very like comfortable life. Um, you know, very lucky and like privileged just the era I was born, you know, to the parents and family I was born and, and the part of the world, like part of the country. Um, and just, just kind of my own like gifts and, and, you know, just the opportunities I've been afforded. So I, I want to be able to kind of factor that into my optimism. Um, but I, I do think that even, even, having considered all that i do think you kind of have to be hopeful because there's cause otherwise what's the alternative just being nihilistic and and sort of throwing hands up and not trying to come up with a solution and, and try to work through problems it's uh, you know it's that's just that's just depressing and you know it's like what's what, what would be the point like if you give up then obviously you're you're not gonna the world's not gonna get better um if everyone gave up right so someone's gotta someone's gotta do the work but um, right, I, I mean, I like I like. There's two analogies. I think, like you said, there's the uh, the, the issues the issues themselves, right? Like, what do we do in this pandemic? Um, and then 
I think, you know, there's, there's sort of the meta issues of like, how do we solve issues in general? Like what's, what's the process for that? And that's partially government, but partially it can be like at the individual level. I think there's mental models that, that are more helpful than others. I think there's certain like statistical things like Bayes theorem, uh, which we don't really have time to get into and all that, but like things of ways of like, interpreting, okay, what does the statistic mean? Like, how do I, how do I like uh, determine truth? How do I do that? I think right. those are, those are, um, it's like Elon talking about, you know, the, the Tesla is important, the machine is important, but the machine that builds the machines far more important. Right. Um, and, you know, I guess that's, that's my hope with this, this podcast. And also that's a good segue, like you said, of, of like, how do we, you know, how people are like waking up and wanting, wanting better conversations. Um, so the tomorrow people initiative itself is, and the meetups that we've been, been doing virtually is it's creating that space and time for, you know, people who, who want to, I guess, dive a little deeper and actually talk about issues with a little more substance and a little more of a human element and, and, uh, I don't know, structure and more than 140 characters. Right. I, I think it's, I think there's, there's a time and place for wit, but you really can't like we needed two hours to cover all this stuff and we you know again we could probably do a whole series of podcast episodes and dive into each of the specifics the history and the future and the technology and artificial intelligence and all that um and we still we still would have tons to talk about so that's right um yeah i don't know i guess uh any parting thoughts any kind of words of wisdom that you think uh anyone who's made it to this two hour mark would, would benefit from. I think that's a probably a good way to wrap up. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, be good to each other. I don't know. <laughs> Humans are great. You're great. This is great. Have more meaningful conversations. Think about what really matters to you. Cut out the bullshit. Um, take care of your health. Cause it's hard to get back. I don't know. Cool. Um, yeah, keep doing the things that you think you can make a positive difference towards. Sure. Well, awesome. Love it, David. Appreciate the time as always. It's always a great conversation. Hell yeah. And uh, yeah, I know you've been busy with working on projects and uh, it's Thanksgiving and stuff. But uh, like I said, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. We'll uh, we'll have to do a follow up at some point. But um, yeah, I think this was this was a fantastic podcast and. Uh, like I said, just thanks again. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. This has been super fun. I'm so glad that you're doing this. Cool. Awesome. We'll wrap things up there. Until next time. Until next time. <laughs>